Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we always bow our hearts before you when we consider your holy word. God breathed, inspired from heaven, a word sent to, to heal us, to make us whole, to bless us. May we hear this word and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. According to a market data enterprise report, the U.S. Uh, self-improvement market is worth $9.6 billion, with a B, dollars. Apparently, there's a notion out there somewhere, people thinking, my life could be better and more fulfilling, less frustrating, and there must be a way to improve myself. I just don't know how. So enter a $700 million uh, industry of self-help books alone. The total money makeover. The one-minute manager. The seven habits of highly effective people. Awaken the giant within. How to take immediate control of your mental, emotional, physical, and financial destiny. All for $11.53. Now, Apparently also, the Holy Spirit knows that there's a notion out there that our lives could be better and more fulfilling, less frustrating, and there must be a way to improve our lives. We just don't know how. So, he's inspired men of God to reveal to us how to live a rewarding life, deep and satisfying. I love Jesus' very concise mission statements when he'd sum up his entire ministry with one sentence. One of those statements is, I have come that you might have life, abundant life, overflowing. And uh, the picture there is rich and profound and satisfying life, not just merely existing, but really the joy and love and peace, and uh, all the things of contentment that make life worth living. And so he reveals that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to improve our lives. Well, is really, the short answer is to trust Jesus, yield our lives to him, and be blessed. Now, the longer answer to how to improve our lives would be really down to certain key behaviors and how you live, and rather, more importantly, what kind of person you are. Peter will use a phrase in this morning's text that if we do these things, if we're these, this kind of person will inherit a blessing. So he's saying, look, look, everybody wants to be blessed, right? If you do this, if you're this kind of person, you will be blessed. And so these uh, are the words which we're going to consider this morning. Here in chapter 3, um, as I've been saying, the Apostle Peter will continue to give us God-inspired prescription for that blessed life. How believers can improve themselves and live in peace and harmony and contentment and enjoy their lives in spite of trouble persecution or difficulties or whatever. And really, it's not really about so much the six principles as it is the transformed life 
that as we live it, it brings blessing. Inherent in the new life that God gives the believer is God's favor and God's blessing. Verse 8. So finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and now he quotes from the psalm we read, Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we'll stop there for this morning's consideration. The idea here is to inherit a blessing. You need to be one. Everybody wants to be blessed, but there's an asking price that nobody wants to pay. Does God bless me? And he says, I will bless you as soon as you implement my word in obedience and in faith and simple trust. There's a blessing waiting for you, but you just can't live any old way you want, even if you are a believer. There's a way to live that brings blessing. There's a way to live that brings frustration and strife and trouble. And it's an equal opportunity employer in that you can be saved and blessed or frustrated, or you can be an, a non-Christian even with certain behaviors that bring blessing. Ultimately, there is no blessing outside of a personal relationship with Christ. And so we're going to take a look at these verses now. The verse starts with finally. And like any good preacher, he's going to go on for two more chapters after he says finally. Now, I love him. I love him. He is my role model. All right. So the next time you're all frustrated and say, you just said finally, and it's been 10 minutes. Hello? Where do I get it from? Well, actually, his finally means in this thought that I've been talking to you about how Christians are an extension of Jesus Christ and an extension of who he is in ministry in this world that we need to be impacting the society. So he's been saying, as law-abiding citizens, as gracious employers, the term was master, as conscientious employees, it was servants or slaves, as respectful wives, as we considered last week, as loving and considerate husbands, as we considered as well last week. Now, people who break the law, employers who are harsh, employees who are nothing but trouble, wives who are disrespectful to their husbands, and husbands who are unloving toward their wives are people whose relationship with God is questionable and suspect because of faith in God must be evidenced by a life that reflects his moral character. 
And that's what James just sums it up. Look, listen, if you say you're a Christian and there's nothing to show for that, then that kind of faith is dead. That's what James says. So this is where finally he's just done with how we impact all of these places in society. He says, now finally, let me just wrap up what I've been saying by a couple little sentences here that just kind of summarize everything I've been saying. So this is what he's going to do now. Verses 8 through 10 is just if you're going to inherit a blessing, you must be a person of Christian character and go about life God's way as a citizen of heaven might. So he gives you six qualities here, and there are others like them, but these six qualities really must characterize who you are if you are going to inherit a blessing. If God's going to bless your life, he's saying, these are the kinds of things you might want to make a checklist if you are frustrated right now in your life, if you are having a hard time, if you're just thinking, I wish God would bless me, then this message is for you because he's saying, here's a checklist. If these kinds of things can be found pretty consistently in your life, you will be blessed. And so the first one here, well, well what are they all together here? I've got a list of them for you. There's six of them, and we're going to go through them one at a time. Harmony, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, humility, and forgiveness. Now, we don't have time to sermonize on each one in depth, but we can mention them and uh, talk about these. These are the characteristics, the earmarks of Christianity. You say you're a Christian, these are the things that ought to be present in your life. And, and may I just say, not because you say they are, but because people who we ask around you, who live with you, would say, yeah, these are things that represent this person's life. Number one, he says, live in harmony with one another. Now, the easy way to define this is someone who is easy to get along with. Very quite simple. Uh, Lee, uh, the Greek word is homophron, which means common thinking or like-mindedness or sharing the same thoughts and attitudes with. Karen Jobes, an excellent commentator, has this like-mindedness implies a willingness to conform one's goals, needs, and expectations to the purposes of the larger community. So in other words, you are going to minimize differences and maximize the thing that we have in common for the task, for the sake of the bigger picture, for the unity and harmony of what's more important than just yourself. This is what he says. So he says, finally, live in harmony with one another. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He's saying, Christians are not to be clones. We're not cookie-cutter images of one another. Uh, Christians may differ on how things get done, but they agree on what must be done and why. And so he's crying out here that Christians be people who get along with one another. 
interesting article by way of example here, difficult personalities at work that compromise the team unity and make getting along together and having harmony in the workplace very difficult. Number one, the me monster. It's all about me, not the team, not the task, not the boss, not the core values of the company, not the product, not, not, not anybody here except an exaggerated self-importance. They're rude, demanding, and they know everything. Number two, the baby. The baby has to have their way, high maintenance, doesn't want to share, pouts and throws tantrums, whines and complains about everything, makes a lot of messes, inside and outside their diapers, sorry. <laughs> Avoids hard work, plays the poor me, I'm the exception to the rule. Number three, the gossip always in somebody's business and talking about things they ought not to be talking about and causing strife and division that distract from the task at hand. And they always feel a need to tattle tale on everybody else. Number four, the credit grabber, someone who always needs to be recognized and becomes resentful without it. They don't like to delegate because they don't want to share the accomplishment. Number five, the critical spirit, the guy with the clipboard who always finds fault with everybody and everything. We had one of those at this uh, college where I used to teach for 10 years. Um, every staff meeting, every single time the hand went up everybody would roll their eyes because they knew it was coming. It was going to be a complaint of some kind. Well, here's what I'm talking about because these, these descriptions describe all of us uh, in our weaker moments, in our maturing process. There's zero homophren, harmony, unity possible when people like this are trying to work together to get something done. Instead, Christians, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the word of God, for the sake of lost souls who will perish forever, we lay down our little idiosyncrasies, our little differences, our preferences, our sinful nature, so that we can show deference to one another so that the unity and the like-mindedness is not compromised. The me monster, the former me monster, becomes other-centered. It's all about Jesus and the kingdom. The former baby grows up into Christian maturity when the whole measure of fullness of Christ. The former gossip has learned to keep a tight rein on their tongue. The former credit grabber now wants all glory and honor to go to Jesus and is, and is happy to see somebody else get some uh, honor. The former fault finder becomes somebody who builds people up. Philippians 1, um, verse rather, 27. No matter what, you must all stand firm in one spirit, fighting as one man for the faith of the gospel. You know, living in harmony means we don't all hit the same note. That's what harmony means. To make the chord grander, you, you hit harmony notes, 
Not everybody all on the same note, but everybody harmonizing, and you do need to be in the same chord. And we are in one accord. <laughs> Sorry, that was so bad. I just need a drummer here to just go like this. <laughs> we are in one accord, but we, uh, we definitely need to live in harmony. For our, what's our common chord? The spread of the gospel, the salvation of souls, the health of the church, the equipping of Christians, the care of the needy, the strengthening of marriages, the raising of our children in the faith, preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. I think for those reasons alone, all other things can become subservient to the thing that really matters. So he says, live in harmony. Get along with each other. Number two, he says, be sympathetic. By definition, the Greek, sympathes, where we get the word sympathy from in the Greek. It means to enter into another one's pain, a willingness to feel what someone else feels. And it's not always easy to come by. You know, one of life's major mistakes is being the last member in the family to get the flu after all the sympathy has run out. <laughs> in a world filled with trouble and need, it's very easy to get jaded and harden your heart and not be a sympathetic uh, person, to be cold and uncaring and callous just as a kind of a, a defense mechanism. I mean, there's only so much you can take, it seems. Just listening to the news this morning, babies disappearing. Where is baby Lisa? Ugh. Wars and terrorism, people blowing each other up, rioting in the streets, famines and tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and tsunamis and earthquakes. Even so, when it comes to life together in the kingdom of God, we are not afforded the luxury of building up walls to, to protect ourselves from having to care about things. We cannot do that in the kingdom of God. Christianity 1A, being sympathetic is sort of intentional. It's willful. You decide. I am going to enter into a sympathetic relationship here. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. Romans 12, 15. Mourn with those who mourn. It's a lot easier just to say, hey, I'll be praying for you. Here's a scripture, Romans 8, 28. And you can say that without really sympathizing. Sometimes hurting people need more than a Bible verse. Sympathy is a catalyst to action. Small or great, something happens when I really sympathize. Barclay on sympathizing. One thing is clear. Sympathy and selfishness cannot coexist. As long as self is the most important thing in the world, there could be no such thing as sympathy. Sympathy depends on the willingness to forget self and identify oneself with the pains and sorrows of others. 
Sympathy comes to the heart when Christ reigns there. I wonder what it feels like to be, you should be thinking and I should be thinking, a man out of work for months. Sit at the kitchen table in your mind with him and his wife. Look at the wife's face. Feel the husband's grief as the wife is looking to him to provide. Feel that stress in the household. Hear the children asking about birthday presents and why they can't do this. Why can't we go here? Why don't we have this? Just sit and think and feel. It will make a difference how you respond. When the 32-year-old young lady, Christian, is talking to you about feeling lonely, joking about going to all her friends' weddings, she goes home to her apartment. She's alone. I want you to feel, says sympathy. I want you to hear the clacking of the silverware as she eats by herself that same night after talking to you in fellowship. I want you, sympathy is speaking to us, I want you to feel that ache in her heart. Am I always going to be alone? Why? Where is he? I dreamed of this all my life, I'm 32 which I think is still young, by the way. <laughs> Can you imagine the grief of a wife struggling with a husband who is harsh, and she's getting the signal, you know, he doesn't really love me. I'm trapped. I am trapped in a relationship, a Christian one, where I will not divorce, but I sense he doesn't really love me. Feel it, and then act. Let it prompt you. Instead of saying, Romans 8.28, you will feel it, you will sense it, you might do something differently. Sympathy opens and unites our hearts to each other. A closed heart is not a Christian heart. To choose to sympathize is the glue that keeps us able to walk alongside one another in prayerful, supportive, patient, and loving and helpful ways. Uh, just a little PS on sympathy. It'll change your own heart about things. Uh, I went to a counselor about uh, a lifetime struggle with my father, who's now passed away now many years, but had a very difficult childhood, and he didn't know the Lord back then. And uh, I was telling the counselor all my problems, and then he says, tell me about your father. And I did. And he said, no, 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 no. What, how did he grow up? And I start telling the story. And it was kind of a tough life. And I'm telling the story, and he's, and he's digging it out of me. Every time I brought up a hardship, oh, tell me more about that. So I tell him more about that. And then at the end, with an evil look on his face, 
he says, hmm, I wonder what it would be like to be him. And my heart went out to my father. And now I started to see him, instead of personalizing every little thing, I started to see him as a victim. And my heart softened toward him, and now I was able to be more patient. Sympathy is worth the effort. Number three, love is brothers. The Greek word, philadelphos, where we get the word? Philadelphia, of course, the city of brotherly love. And now, by the way, the emphasis is not on love here. The em emphasis is on brotherly. Now, um, in most siblings, there is this loyal, warm affection. We've come to a, such a dysfunctional place in society, it's almost difficult to use this. Example is love with brotherly love, and everybody goes, are you kidding me? That would be hard. But uh, generally speaking, there's this special thing. I've told you about, every time I think about this, I, I see the picture of two little boys that were in a shopping cart in the little seat there. And I was at Oliver's, and I was checking out and I'm, I'm stuck there, and the mom's got a lot of stuff, and these uh, maybe a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and they're facing me, and I'm standing right there. And they think it's so funny to grab onto each other and, and press their heads closely together as hard as you could do without popping something. And they're just squeezing, and their heads are together, and both of them are glowing and laughing and chuckling, and they're I'm right there in front of them. And I just it was so delightful. And every time I think of that, I think of this brotherly love, this warm, loyal, family-connecting love that we're supposed to have that's not an option. <laughs> it is not an option. 1 John 4.20 says, it's easy to say you love God. It's an invisible heart thing. But if that invisible relationship does not manifest in loving others in visible ways, then your first claim is a lie. You cannot say, I've got this invisible relationship with God, the love of my life. The source of all love lives in my heart, and then it doesn't manifest in the ones that the Father has uh, given spiritual birth to. We wake up as born-again Christians already in a family with other born-again Christians who have the same father, and we are obligated and responsible to them, not necessarily in warm fuzzies, but in a moral obligation to connect and care for one another and walk with one another as spiritually birthed by the same Father, So it's not really an option. 1 John 4.21, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, curiously, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he said something. I don't know if it catches you the way it kind of catches me. He said, a new command I give to you, love one another. It's not really a new commandment that's in the Old Testament, that they had to love one another as you love yourself, right? 
Well, what did he mean by that? Well, the word in the Greek for new there that Jesus was using uh, is the word that means fresh. It doesn't mean like the commandment was just invented, but that it is presented in a new and fresh way. Here's Hoskins, the commentator. While the Old Testament demanded that men should love their neighbors the way they love themselves, the new command is that they should love their Christian brothers and sisters better than themselves and die for their friends, the way Jesus is about to go to the cross. So the command to love wasn't new, but the extent of love being now displayed by Jesus going to the cross was new. Love was newly defined from his example. I read this just this morning. High school boy who begs rescuers to save his little brother first is among a dozen people who drowned in Australia in a big flood. Police are continuing to comb cars, trees, creeks, and houses for trapped bodies after the devastating flash flood swept through their township, sensing there might not, this is moving, Sensing there, there might not be enough time to save them both, 16-year-old Kyle insisted that the Good Samaritans who were rescuing them um, first rescue his 10-year-old brother, Blake. And as the rescuers quickly turned their attention to Blake, Kyle was swept away. But Blake was saved. Brotherly love. A new command. If we're going to die for one another, it might be a good idea to learn how to get along together. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just saying. Uh, sometimes you can't even leave church without getting offended and driving away sort of mad. Did you see the way she looked at me? Oh, yeah. And look at him. He didn't even, oh, whoa, you're already catching on here. So-and-so ignored me, didn't give me the time of day. Who do they think they are? Oh, the holy roller or whatever. We're supposed to be laying down our lives for one another. We can't even look at each other without offending one another. Dear God, save us. Amen? Amen. 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 Brotherly love overlooks insults, 